So the reading, uh, John chapter 6, and it's actually going to be from verses 1 to 15. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they had seen the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take almost a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First of all, let me say uh, what a privilege it I consider it to be to be able to speak to you this morning and to share something from God's word with you. It's always a privilege to be able to do that. And it's lovely to see so many happy, smiling faces this morning. Um, And I hope there are a few watching online as well. Maybe there are. Um, When we look at a Bible passage, we should always look at the context that it's set in. It has been said in the past that a text out of context is a pretext, and often that's true. So in these opening verses, it says, sometime after this, after what? Well, we think that this took place after Jesus had sent out his disciples on their sort of first missionary journey. And they had returned from their missionary journeys and wanted to share with him the the good news of what they'd accomplished. But also at this time, John the Baptist had been murdered. Um, So that's the sort of context sometime after this. Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. It's at a time when multitudes were being won to Christ by the benevolent ministry of him. He went about doing good, healing people, as Michael so brilliantly explained to us last week. Now, this miracle that we've just uh, read about is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. 
And therefore, some people think perhaps this one is the most important because this is the one that, that, that merits inclusion by all four of the gospel writers. <clears throat> I'll leave you to judge at the end whether you think it's the most important. But as Anna said in the first sermon in this series, these miracles were signs to point us to something greater. And all the sermons are available on podcast. And if you haven't heard them, I would recommend them because the first three were great. And this morning, I want to uh, point out three signs that I think this miracle points us to. And the first is um, revealed in these first uh, few verses. So when Jesus looked up and saw this great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? I suspect that when Jesus went with his disciples, actually, he wanted to talk to them about their trips. Perhaps he wanted to talk to them about the murder of John the Baptist and what that implied for his own and their own future ministry. But when he sees the people, he says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? So I think the first thing this is pointing us towards is Christ's compassion for the people. Where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? As Michael said to us last week, God loves people. God loves us. God loves you. And he loves you as you are. I really like that little sign that we have at the back of the church there that you should see, hopefully, as you come in. Come as you are. You are welcomed as you are. You are loved as you are but he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. He wants to bless you. He wants to change you. He wants to improve you. And I am absolutely certain he wants to improve me. But he loves you as you are, and Christ loved these people as they were. And he saw this crowd coming, and he had compassion on them. So he says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? You don't have to be a Christian already to be loved by God, to be looked after by God. And Christ has compassion for the people. He wants to meet their physical needs as they are now. In that most famous verse, perhaps in all the Bible, John 3.16, it tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world and he gave us Jesus and Jesus in his ministry revealed what God was like to us. But you know that word, word world in the Greek is cosmos. God loves the world, the cosmos the created world. That's not just the Christians, and it's not just the people. And God wanted to give something 
to the world, and he gave us his son. God's a giver. And this shows to me God's goodness. And God, as revealed in Christ, wanted to give something to these people, bread for their physical needs. And when he gave, he gave generously as well. Now Christ asks Philip a question, and he says, um, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Do you ever feel God asks you a question? Do you ever feel that God asks you things? I certainly feel from time to time he asks me things. And last weekend we had a, a Joshua day to, together where we asked ourselves some questions. And I think he does that to involve us, to get us thinking, to get us involved. He doesn't need our help to solve these problems. He doesn't need my wisdom to solve this problem, and he doesn't need yours, however great yours is. God knows what he's going to do, and he knows what he's going to do about our future. Um, but he chooses to involve us in the process. And so Philip, with his analytical mind, says, well, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Eight months' wages. In today's terms, that'd be about £20,000. But we're told there were 5,000 men there, plus women, plus children. There may have been up to 20,000 people in this crowd, certainly between 15 and 20,000. And yet God provides for every one of them. It's a sign to us of God's generosity. Now in verses 8 and 9 it says, Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? <clears throat> a little boy. This is the only go uh, gospel that mentions that it was a little boy that provided the five small loaves and two small fish. But he gave what he had to Christ, and Christ gave thanks, and maybe as many as 20,000 people had as much as they wanted to eat. How generous God is. And so, I think this is the second key point. And to my mind, this is the most important point that we should get from this, uh, this miracle. Christ's colossal power. Now, I'll stretch that a bit, perhaps, to keep the alliteration. But just think about this colossal power in this miracle. Five small loaves, two small fish, 20,000 maybe people fed. That's colossal power. 
Now, there are two ways that are commonly given to interpret this parable. And the first is that it was a simple, miraculous multiplication of the five loaves and the two fish. So that as Jesus took them and broke them and gave them to his disciples to pass on to the people, that somehow they were miraculously multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and everyone got fed and everyone had as much as they wanted. And for many, many years I've taken that as, as the, my explanation of that, that somehow there was a miraculous multiplication of all those atoms and molecules and everyone was fed. And if you want to interpret it like that, that's absolutely fine. But there's maybe another way of looking at it. And in some ways, this is perhaps a more natural explanation. And yet, it is nevertheless, in my mind at least, a real miracle. A real miracle. So you picture the scene. There's this crowd come. A huge crowd, whatever the number was. And it's getting late. And they're getting hungry. Now, if we put ourselves in that situation, is it likely that no one else in the crowd had brought any food with them? Would they not have thought, certainly if my wife had been in the crowd, she would have thought, we're going to be hungry later, we'd better pack something up to take with us. Maybe these people had. And maybe they'd got it, tucked in their pockets, hidden in the packs or something. But just maybe they were selfish. And uh, they wouldn't get out what they'd got. Because if they did and they started to eat and other people around them had nothing, then they'd feel guilty about that. And they'd feel compelled to share. And they didn't really want to do that. And so rather than get it out, they kept it to themselves. And maybe the miracle is this, that as this little lad brought what he had to Jesus and gave it to him, and Jesus gave thanks and shared what he'd been given with his disciples and then with others, and they shared it with the crowd around them, that maybe these people got out of their pockets what they'd got, and they began to share with those around them. And in that way, maybe 20,000 people were fed. And so maybe, just maybe, this is the real miracle. That God, when he comes and demonstrates what he's like, that he's a giver and that he's generous, he changes our selfish hearts into giving hearts. Maybe that's the real miracle here. Whichever way you want to take it, I don't mind. It's a miracle. And it's a miracle of colossal power 
that 20,000 people or so get fed. It's a sign of God's greatness. Michael said to us last week, you can't cure the human heart with human effort. I was listening, Michael. I was so impressed by it, I wrote it down. You can't cure the human heart with human effort. And maybe that's the real miracle here. Over my lifetime, I've done a few different jobs, but most of it's been spent as a teacher. And 47 years ago, I took my first teaching job at, Withen, at uh, Brookway High School in Withenshaw. And being a young, keen, enthusiastic, evangelical Christian, I immediately volunteered to take assemblies in the school. And about this time of year, in that my first school, I took an assembly at harvest time. So I took the word harvest, and I challenged the students to think about some of the words uh, that we could make out of that word, harvest. The first word I want to draw your attention to is this. Let's take the four letters, H-A-V-E, have. We are among the one-third of this world's population that have more than enough to eat. And in round terms, it's still true, 47 years later, to say about one-third of the world have more than enough to eat, more food than they need. But let's change the letters a bit, because sadly, it's also true that about one-third of the world's population starve. One-third have more than enough, about one-third have just enough, and one-third don't have enough. They starve. So what's the solution? Well, another word we can make from this, share. If those who have are willing to share what they have, then none need starve. And when I first did that assembly, that's where I left it. But as I came to repeat it at other schools and with other years, over the years, I realized what stops us sharing is such a simple solution. Those who have, share with those who starve. What stops us doing it? The real problem is what Michael pointed out last week, that you can't cure the human heart with human effort alone. We need a change in our hearts. And maybe that's the miracle that's accomplished here. This change of heart that only a God of love can accomplish. But that's not quite the end of the story. And so that brings me to the third sign that I see here. You see, it says, when they'd all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets 
with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. I see another sign here of Christ's concern for the planet. Now, I was born just after the Second World War had finished, <clears throat> in the days when rationing was still there, and ration books. And so, whenever I heard this preached on, it was always, waste not, want not, make do and mend, as we had to do in those days. But actually, I do see this as a sign pointing to Christ's concern for the planet. You see, again, imagine the scene. This had been a grassy hillside when Jesus arrived. And Jesus had gone there with his 12 disciples. And I suspect he'd really just wanted to spend the time with them. But this crowd had come. And Jesus had had compassion for the people. And he demonstrated his colossal power. But then when the people had gone, and the crowd had gone, and they'd been fed, and they'd had enough, there was a bit of a mess left behind. So what did Jesus do? To my mind, it points to his concern for the planet. This place wasn't a mess when we arrived. We'll take the initiative. We'll clear it up. And it tells us that they gathered 12 basketfuls with what, of what was left. Twelve basketfuls, presumably one for each disciple. They were involved in clearing up the mess that others had made. And this is a point that would have real topical resonance today, I think. Young people in particular are concerned about the state of the planet isn't Christ? Doesn't he have a concern for the planet? I think he does. We've got COP26 coming up. But it's not just up to the world leaders. Let me take you back again to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the cosmos. When we look at this blue dot hanging in space, doesn't it look beautiful? Doesn't it? It's a beautiful picture. Our beautiful planet. God so loved the world. Not just us. Not just people. But this created world. In Genesis 1, when man's told to have dominion over it, if you were brought up on the authorized version like I was, or if you've been brought up on the... NIV have rule over it. Perhaps it makes us think that we're masters and we can do what we like. But I think that word would be better translated stewardship. Have stewardship over creation. Care for it. Look after it. Take care of it. Because God loves it. He loves it as well as he loves us. And there is lots and lots of things that we can do practically, if we want to, to take care of our planet. You don't need me to tell you this. Every news bulletin, there'll be something about climate change, looking after the planet, what we can do. We know 
we should drive less, walk more, cycle more, turn down the heat, put on an extra jumper, whatever. As I walked up to church this morning, I passed a man carrying a carrier bag, and it had an old message on it that, again, I remember doing assemblies about when I was still teaching. Reduce, reuse, recycle. You could think of ten things, I bet, easily, if I gave you one minute, that you could do. Let me just challenge you. Pick three to do this week, and then do three more next week, and so on. Let's see this as a sign of God's concern for the planet. Maybe our musicians uh, will come back and uh, get ready to lead us, please. So, these are the three things that I think God wants to bring to our attention from this miracle, this sign that we've looked at this morning. Christ's compassion for the people, Christ's colossal power, and Christ's concern for the planet. But I do think the middle point there is the most important. Let's focus on Christ's colossal power. I've asked the musicians if they would lead us in the song, How Great is Our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. That's what I want to impress upon you most this morning. How great is our God. His colossal power that takes five loaves, two fish, and feeds 20,000 maybe people. How great is our God. Let's stand together and sing it with the musicians. How great is our God. <laughs>